Welcome to the History of European Theatre Podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 90. Creating a Profession. The Development of the Stage Player. Last time, I looked at the very earliest London playhouses, from those that were repurposed inns to the first purpose-built theatres. The theatre in Shoreditch, built by Burbage and his family, led to the building of the Globe, which I think for most of you won't be too hard to imagine thanks to its modern reconstruction. There will be more on the playhouses coming up, but first I wanted to look at the players who worked in those playhouses in this very early period and a little beyond. Just as the playhouses developed out of the medieval period, it's reasonable to suppose that the art of acting and the lifestyle of the players changed too. As with the record of playhouses, the records are sparse, but we do have occasional gems of information from which we can draw a picture of how the profession of acting, of stage playing, as those at the time would have said, made a tentative start. If we go back to the reign of Henry VIII, say the 1530s, and even sometime before that, there's a suggestion of players who worked as full-time entertainers. But this is players in the broadest sense of the word. Rather than what we think of as actors, they would have had a much broader skill set. Musicians, singers, jugglers, storytellers, dancers and acrobats. Entertainers who worked in any combination of the above. Reciting stories and acting in plays was undoubtedly included in their trade, but was only part of it. Before the Tudor period, the lack of evidence of professional full-time players and entertainers suggests that those who were professionals, whose main income was gained through performance of one sort or another, still worked an itinerant circuit in the country. Many entertainers, if not most, held other jobs, but possessed a talent that meant that they were called on to perform, and we might reasonably call them amateurs to one degree or another. So the farm labourer who could dance, the tanner who could tell a good story, the baker who sang, that kind of thing. From London in particular, there is an almost complete lack of mention of entertainers from the early Tudor period. It may be that it's just unlucky and relevant records have been destroyed, but given their future attitude to the playhouses, it also seems reasonable to think that the aldermen of the city resisted the establishment of permanent or semi-permanent places of entertainment from early on. Whatever the case, it seems clear that there was no concept of a profession of acting, that the playing of the stage was something mostly done by an amateur. You'll have noticed in the last episode that the builders of the playhouses are also mentioned as having other professions before their role as creators of the playhouses or as actors. John Brain was a grocer and James Burbage was a carpenter who turned to acting. For the players who travelled in the most rural settings, we have few records that suggest a semi-itinerant lifestyle. The visiting of troops to particular communities does have a suggestion of regularity about it, but not the sense that troops were constantly on the move all year round. Travelling in the winter months was difficult, and the trade fairs and feast days that attracted crowds and therefore performers, with the exception of the Christmas period, were held in the spring and the summer months. It seems likely that troops performed for these events, but then disbanded and returned to the day job of some sort. In winter, maybe they performed in their own locality for Christmas, but didn't travel so much. A subset of the rural travelling player was a troop that were in the employ of a rural lord. Some would be household servants and retainers who had a particular talent. Some may have been specifically employed to perform. Their main role would be as entertainers for the lord and his guests, 
but they were sometimes sent on to neighbouring gentry as a gift or gesture of goodwill, and at times loaned to the community to perform at the religious and seasonal celebrations. All of this is, of course, with the purpose of enhancing the Lord's reputation locally. This group, who probably worked a local circuit rather than travelling widely, were likely the most professional of all the players, with their roles slowly changing from bonded men who performed in addition to their usual household tasks to men who were primarily players, but still in the service of a lord. The last decade of Henry VIII's reign brought problems for both rural and urban players. The upheavals of the Reformation complicated what players were asked to do and what they were allowed to present. Some were employed to spread the message of the Reformation and performed plays and sang songs that promoted the anti-papal message in support of the religious supremacy of the king. Others wanted to continue to support the Pope and performed the traditional cycle plays or morality plays that showed how only true believers could be saved. Matters of religious doctrine became entwined with political positions and as Henry's position against the church hardened and feelings ran high over the dissolution of the monasteries, changes in the mass and other religious matters, the activities of players were curtailed. The 1530s and 40s and 50s were a difficult and unpredictable time to be a player in England, as views and rules of what was permitted and what was not allowed changed frequently. Players not already in the service of a lord soon found that this was by far the best way to be able to continue performing. When taken into a lord's service, there was regular work as the household entertainers, and a degree of safety when out in the country under the protection of his badge and papers. When Elizabeth came to the throne, things got a little easier with the firm turn to Protestantism, but caution and protection were still required, even before new vagrancy laws were brought in. It became very difficult to be an independent travelling player without some sort of sponsorship as protection, as the laws tightened the ability of people to move freely around the country. Players were notably not excluded from the general condition of the new laws introduced in 1572, so that they could be arrested for travelling without the protection of a lord. Nevertheless, the troops found their way to London and performed in the early theatres and inns, in private houses and the early playhouses. It may be that this period of difficulty for performers was a real help in the development of an acting profession. Having been forced into tight groups that had little option but to stay together, they honed a craft that was then ready for the openings that were about to arrive. That the troops had to perform in different locations, were forced to travel light and in small numbers, was part of the reason why English plays were written in a way that focused on creating scenery, locations and characters with words. As I've mentioned before, English was just coming into its own as a language that poets and playwrights could craft and take pride in, and the work of the Elizabethan playwrights in particular played a big part in forging this newly discovered love of English. Performing a season in London, probably a mixture of private and public performances, became a profitable operation. The playing troops became more settled in the place where they could make a regular income thanks to the large population. London had more or less doubled in size during Henry's reign, so that by 1550 the population of the city was about 100,000 souls. For comparison, the other large cities in the country could only boast populations of no more than 10,000 to 15,000 people, and the total population of England was about 3 million. This was a period of rapid population growth, with the total population rising to 4 million by 1600. In comparison to the wider world, England was still a pretty small place. 
Paris had a population of about 350,000 at the same time, and in Rome the city might have been housing as many as one million. The rise of the London Playhouse and the London-based playing troops really marks the beginning of the end for the amateur player as an important part of the story of English theatre. As the playhouses became established and the actor became recognised as a type of player, the amateur more or less disappears from the records, particularly in the urban setting. At the same time, theatre building is seen as something worthy of a businessman's attention. As we heard last time with the story of the construction of the theatre, there was at least the idea that there were profits to be made in the theatre, although, as you heard, the story of the litigations around the acquiring and maintaining of the theatre in Shoreditch would suggest that this was no easy ride. The exact makeup of the troops at the earliest times is difficult to define. Certainly they were all men, with a boy or two to take the female roles. The number of players probably varied depending on the intentions and wealth of its sponsor, but troops were probably of four players minimum and up to six or eight players in total. Later we can see that the relationship becomes more commercial, with written agreements between the members of the troop, some of whom became shareholders in the company. Additional players were sometimes recruited to temporarily expand the company, there were mergers and demergers, and a lengthening of the relationship between lord and player. Young men and boys were taken on as apprentices to be trained for the company, and eventually, in the ultimate show of confidence, actors constructed playhouses for their own use, becoming landlords as well as artists. The earliest troupe that we have some records for is the Earl of Leicester's men. The troupe was formed in 1559 from the members of the Earl's household, and we know that they performed both privately for him, as travelling players, and in London. With the 1572 legislation, players had to carry letters from their sponsor to ensure safe travel through the country. From that year, we have the letters that the Earl of Leicester's men carried with them. These not only confirm them as the Earl's liveried retainers, but also as his household servants. Now that status meant that they could enter the City of London without restriction. So they were, in effect, able to perform anywhere in the country under the general protection of the Earl. However, they would also have needed permission from local councillors in the towns or city boroughs where they were proposing to perform before they could stage a play. The same document confirms that actors did not expect any further financial support from the Earl, which implies that they had been maintained at his expense previously. But now, although still under his protection, they were operating as an independent professional company. It was this model that the subsequent troops were to follow through to the Civil War period and the general closure of all theatres. In 1572, the Earl's men were a company of five players, and the same five are mentioned on a royal patent issued in May 1574, in the name of Queen Elizabeth. The patent permitted the actors to use, exercise and occupy the art and faculty of playing comedies, tragedies, interludes, stage plays and other such like, as well within our city of London, as also within the liberties and freedoms of any other cities, towns, boroughs, etc. whatsoever, throughout our realm of England. That gave the players much more freedom over where they could perform as local objections could be overruled with this permit. But that didn't mean that they had total freedom. The plays had to be approved by central government, a role taken on by the Lord Chamberlain 
a very senior member of Her Majesty's Government. Another aspect of the legal restrictions on actors came with the English Sumptuary Laws of 1574. These laws stated that citizens were prohibited from wearing any clothing which was above their social standing. As many of the plays were about kings and featured characters from the nobility and the aristocracy, and actors were near the lowest rung of society, there was clearly a problem here. Fortunately, perhaps because the Queen herself enjoyed the theatre, a get-out clause was written into the Sumptuary Laws. It said, Note also that the meaning of this order is not to prohibit a servant from wearing any cognizance of his master or henchmen, heralds, pursuivants at arms, runners at jousts, tournays, or such martial feats, and such as wear apparel given to them by the Queen, and such as shall have licence from the Queen for the same. We'll hear more about the Elizabethan playing troops in future episodes, but for more details now, you can find two episodes devoted to the playing troops on Patreon. More details of that at the end of the episode. Through the period of the reigns of Henry, Elizabeth and James I, it had been possible to identify about 500 individuals who were professional players. For about 10% of that number, we have some detail of their activities, but for the majority, just fleeting accounts at best. Most often, players are just referred to as a troop without any mention of specific members other than the star players. This makes it all but impossible to estimate the total number of stage players at work in the period, or what the turnover of members was within and between playing troops, again with a few specific exceptions. Although actors were professionals by this time, acting was still not seen as a profession. There was no actors' guild, and those boys being taken in for training were not seen in the same light as other apprentices, who as junior members of a guild had specific rights allowed to them in the city. I should also mention here that there were some companies that were made up entirely of boys. There are records of such troops performing for Elizabeth and James, and even concerns expressed in some quarters that they were becoming more popular than the adult troops. The idea that they were very popular is supported by the large number of plays written specifically for the boys' troops. But this was for a relatively short period, and by the second part of the reign of King James, their popularity had waned and they quickly disappeared completely from the theatrical scene. Through the Elizabethan period, the London theatre became more and more commercialised, and some individuals became rich in the process. Successful playwrights could become relatively rich men, but this was more due to their investment in theatre buildings rather than directly from their writing of plays. Theatre owners like Philip Henslow and Edward Allen were very wealthy businessmen, and some actors made a good living. As is the way, of course, the many that did not, the investors that were impoverished through theatre failures and the like, are not so well recorded to history, and there were doubtless many of these. When James I succeeded Elizabeth in 1603, the major playing troops were taken under royal patronage and became officially servants of the crown. But this is not to say that theatre and its players had by then received universal acceptance. Throughout the period, from the reign of Henry VIII to James I, objections to theatre could be summarised as coming from two sides. The concerns of the church were long-standing and well-known. Playing, it was maintained, since the time of the church fathers, was immoral. But objections also came from secular leaders, who saw theatre could be socially disruptive, politically dangerous, and an economic disruption rather than a benefit. 
The playhouses, the secular argument went, were a distraction for the working population, taking men away from productive work and giving them time to think a little too much. Any gathering of a large segment of the population in London in one place was thought of as a potential trouble spot, and with being located in one of the seedier areas outside the city, the theatre and the players always had a bit of an image problem. But we shouldn't think of these objections as united objections, nor a correct one all of the time. Some of the claims made by the objectors were probably legitimate. By Elizabethan times, Southwark was a magnet for vagrants and prostitutes, tricksters and others living on the edge of society, and that tarnished the reputation of the theatre. Some players almost certainly undertook other activities to supplement their income, some of which were no doubt illegal or at least dubious, but neither did that apply to all players. Some of the accusations aimed at the players were no doubt exaggerations and hyperbole for effect, but some of it expressed legitimate concern. And those concerns from the church and from secular leaders did not always align. The position is a lot less clear than simply saying the church and some in society objected to theatre, and attitudes didn't just change with the monarch of the day, but within a period of rule too. It's therefore difficult to document a comprehensive story of the changing attitude to theatre, and we have to rely on documents that are indicative rather than forensic. So, with that in mind, here are some of the opinions about stage players from the time. In February 1547, on the death of Henry VIII, the Bishop of Winchester wrote to Sir William Paget, a senior member of the King's Council. He described how parishioners in his London residence of Southwark were preparing to sing a funeral mass for the late King, but that he had heard that the Players of the Lord Oxford planned to present a solemn play at the Playhouse, which was located at the other end of the borough. His objection that the play should not be performed in the time of mourning for the king doesn't seem an unreasonable one for the time, but he mistrusts the players, doubting that their play will be at all solemn, and he refers to them generically as lewd fellows. He's frustrated because having approached the local justice of the peace for confirmation that the playhouse would be closed, he hath received neither yea nor nay. He claims that the players smallly regard the JP and have even less respect for him, hence his appeal to a higher authority. Where the Bishop of Winchester was probably not being too unreasonable in the circumstances, others did not voice their objections in such measured tones. A German physician, writer and alleged magician Henry Cornelius Agrippa wrote in 1569 that the art of stage playing was wicked and dishonest, and that the act of viewing a play and enjoying a performance was a shameful thing. The delight in a wanton mind was, he said, an offence. He concludes the passage by pointing out that in the past there was no name more infamous than that of stage player, and any that had performed in plays were denied all honour. This is a small passage in a much larger work, and the only mention of theatre, but we can see that he held the historic view about the lowly place of players in society. Some of the anti-theatre rhetoric expressed a concern about the effect that plays would have on an audience. In 1580, Anthony Munday wrote a second and third blast of retreat from theatre. He was building on a first blast written by Stephen Gosson the previous year in a pamphlet called The School of Abuse, containing a pleasant invective upon poets, pipers, players, jesters and such like caterpillars of the Commonwealth. 
This is the Stephen Gosson who would prompt Sir Philip Sidney's defence of poetry in just a few years' time. In this earlier work, Gosson actually makes an attempt at a balanced view when having described actors for prating on the stage and for begging for alms one day and turning their noses at good folk the next. He then adds that It is well known that some of them are sober, discreet, properly learned, honest householders and citizens, well thought of amongst their neighbours at home, although the pride of their shadows cause them to be somewhat ill thought of abroad. Later, he blames the public, saying, Were we not foolish to taste every drug, to buy every trifle? Players would shut in their shops and carry their trade to some other country. Monday prefaces his continuation of Gosson's theme by saying his blasts are of two kinds. One reports the work of a long-dead bishop that proves the filthiness of plays in the past. The other takes the work of a worshipful and zealous contemporary that shows the abomination of theatres in times present. The contemporary writer is assumed to be Monday himself, who was a writer and employed by the state as a heretic hunter. He writes that he hopes the players will see the nearness of the end of days and forsake their unlawful, ungodly and abominable exercise. To balance all that vitriol, here's a more kindly view of the profession. In 1612, actor and playwright Thomas Hayward wrote An Apology for Actors, where he stressed the ancient and honourable traditions that actors still worked in. He argued that the representation of a national hero or national victory on stage could only enhance the Englishman's love of his country and allegiance to it. He quotes Cicero's love of the theatre and his close friendship with the actor Rosius, whom he loved and respected so much that he argued for an annual stipend for the actor from the public purse that was the equivalent of £16, a sum that Hayward says is equivalent to any nobleman's revenue. For those who point out that the Roman theatre became debased, he argues that this is no reason to deny theatre to people now, and that just because a man cuts himself with a knife, it doesn't mean that knives should not be carried. He even picks up on Sidney's line on the improvement in English, by crediting the art of stage playing with creating part of that improvement. He said, Our English tongue, which hath been the most harsh, uneven and broken language of the world, part Dutch, part Irish, Scotch, Welsh, and indeed a gallimorphy of many, but perfect in none, is now, by this secondary view of playing, continually refined, every writer striving in himself to add a new flourish to it. So that in process, from the most rude and unpolished tongue, it has grown to a most perfect and composed language. A gallimorphy means a confused jumble of things, and what a pity that that word has fallen out of use. This is an insider's view, of course, but seeing as balance wasn't really the concern of any of these writers, I think fair enough to include it here. In 1615, the sixth edition of Sir Thomas Overbury's New and Choice Characters of Several Authors was published. As an addition to this edition, a piece called The Character of an Excellent Player was included. It probably wasn't written by Sir Thomas and added as a defence of players following previous published attacks. There's a tradition that it was written by the playwright John Webster, but there seems to be little evidence for this. First, the actor's talents and skills are praised. For by a full and significant action of his body, he charms our attention. 
Sit in a full theatre and you will think you see so many lines drawn from the circumference of so many ears whilst the actor is the centre. He then praises the vocal skills of actors and then their ability to imitate the extremes of human nature, switching from a monarch to exile with skill and precision. They show us, he says, nature and history and humanity on the stage and entertains the best leisure of our life. He concludes, I observe of all men living, a worthy actor in one kind is the strongest motive of affection that can be. For when he dies, we cannot be persuaded any man can do his parts like him. Therefore, the imitating characterist was extreme idle in calling them rogues. His muse, it seems, with all his loud invocation, could not be worked to light him a snuff to read the statute. For I would let his malicious ignorance understand that rogues are not to be employed as the main ornament of his majesty's revels. But the itch of bestriding the press or getting up on this wooden pacolet hath defiled more innocent paper than ever did laxative physic. I value a worthy actor by the corruption of some few of his quality, as I would do gold in the ore. I should not mind the dross, but the purity of the metal. Whoever the author was, they both valued the best actors and forgave those with lesser talents. The age-old bemoaning of the critic is also clear. The wooden pacolet mentioned was a legendary horse that could transport its rider instantly to any location. Quite an obscure reference for us, I think, but even we can't miss the tart reference to criticism defiling paper like a doctor's laxative. Another appreciation of the art came from Richard Baker's Theatre Vindicated, written about 1634, but not published until after the restoration of the monarchy in 1662, nearly 20 years after Baker's death. He tries to get to the heart of the argument about playing, that imitation corrupts the imitator, which had been a persistent argument since Roman times. When an actor presents himself upon the stage, until he speaks, he is but a picture, and when he speaks, he is but a story. For as one once said, well, that a judge is a speaking law, so we may say truly that a player is a speaking picture, or a history in person, and seeing we know no hurt by the picture, and cannot but commend history, why should plays be condemned, which are but the composition made of these two? A history is not condemned if, reading the life of Julian, we set down his cruelty against Christians, and his blasphemy against Christ. And if a historian may lawfully write it, may not we as lawfully read it? And if we may lawfully read it, may not a player as lawfully pronounce it? And what does a player else but only say that without book, which we may read within book? A player acts the part of Solomon, but is never the wiser for acting the part. Why should he be thought of as wicked for acting the part of Nero? An eloquent defence, and I like the idea of players as speaking pictures. But I have to confess that from the samples I've seen, it seems that criticism of players was much more common than defence. From the written record of the period, we can see players called the very dregs of men, as womanish, as sexual perverts, as immoral profiteers, as unwholesome weeds, and as painted sepulchres and double-dealing ambidexters. It's a fine catalogue of insults. The ire of some of these critics knew no bounds. This is from an anonymous pamphlet printed in 1615. As the whole company of heaven, angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, thrones, dominations, virtues, 
principalities, protestates, and all power whatsoever, yea, the devils themselves do tremble and quake at the naming of God and at his presence. And do those mockers and flouters of his majesty, those dissembling hypocrites, think to escape unpunished? Beware, therefore, you players, hypocrites, and like good combatists, cast up your accounts beforehand. What will be your reward in the end? Abuse God no more, corrupt his people no longer with your drags, and intermingle not his blessed word with your profane vanities. Strong stuff. Likely I think that this author was not seen regularly at the theatre. The vitriol expressed against players expressed in that extract was not uncommon, as the country moved towards a more puritanical and Calvinist form of Protestantism. But it might actually indicate that the players and the theatre were in fact becoming more accepted in society, as the popularity of playgoing in London and elsewhere had become well established. The argument goes that the firmer the place of the players in society became established, the louder and shriller the voices of protest became. At this distance, and with the limited evidence available, it's difficult to be precise. But we can say for sure that theatre-going was a popular pastime for those who didn't fear for their immortal souls by entering the playhouse. And the players could become liked, popular and even exalted by their audience. The pinnacle of plays was reserved for the likes of Richard Burbage and Edward Allen, two actors who we will meet again soon. Regarded as the greatest of their day, they died rich men and lauded for their talents. By the time of his death, Allen had all but retired from the theatre, appearing only when the Queen demanded it. But Burbage played on the stage right up to his death in 1619, aged 52. He remained hugely popular, despite many younger actors vying for his spot. It was said that the public grief at his death was so widespread that it overshadowed the official mourning period for Queen Anne, wife of James I, who had died ten days before. He was buried in Shoreditch, close to the two theatres that he'd worked in most, the theatre and the curtain. His gravestone is now lost, but was said rather poignantly just to read, Exit Burbage. A hundred years on, and his prowess on stage still resonated. A memorial was put up to remember Burbage and his brothers. An anonymous poet wrote, A funeral elegy on the death of the famous actor Richard Burbage, who died on Sunday in Lent, 13th of March, 1619. It is a long elegy, but the most striking part reads, He is gone, and with him what a world are dead which he reviewed, to be revived so no more. Young Hamlet, old Hieronymo, kind Lear, the grieved more, and more besides that lived in him have now for ever died. Earlier scholarship looked at the success of the Elizabethan stage and put it down to the playwrights of genius putting out works of a unique calibre. Actors, the thinking went, could not fail to succeed given the material, but now a more nuanced development is suggested. The playwrights were often actors themselves and had learnt what worked on stage by practising the art in tough conditions. The actors needed the playwrights as much as the playwrights needed the actors. The skills of actors developed from keen amateurism to something that we can call a profession, even if their contemporaries did not. And it did so at a time when attitudes towards actors were often changing. From early objections that saw actors as unseemly, even unnatural, in their willingness to inhabit the world of bad characters and utter their thoughts, 
there was a general move towards acceptance as the London playhouses drew large and regular crowds. But there were periods of repression and censorship that meant actors and theatre managers always had to have an eye for the changing religious and political mood of the day. Eventually, thanks to the continuing patronage of the aristocracy and the popularity of the public theatre, stage playing was accepted as something that benefited the public. But still, there were objections. So there is a constant tussle between authorisation and prohibition, praise and scorn, admiration and condemnation. You have to feel for these players and everything that they put up with, but at the same time have nothing but admiration for what they were able to achieve. Next time, having introduced you to the English Playhouse and the Stage Players, I'll take a deeper dive into the changing attitude of the state towards the public theatre and stage players through the English Renaissance and the Reformation periods. It is a turbulent period of political and religious change, where the theatre still managed to flourish. In the meantime, don't forget to join the Facebook page or group and find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast, there are additional episodes available on Patreon, which you can access for a small monthly fee. They cover a range of theatre history-related subjects from all the periods that the main podcast has covered, and a few more recent subjects too. If you are interested in any of these but can't stretch to a monthly commitment, I can also offer a bespoke feed of specific episodes for a one-off payment. You can find details for this on the podcast website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com Once there, just follow the link to Patreon episodes on the main menu where you'll find a list and short description of all the available episodes. Thanks again to everyone who already supports the podcast and to all of you for listening. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.